uh, I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, John chapter 12, verses 12 uh, through 19. And if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews, that's on page 873. But first, before we get to that, I'd like to invite any kids forward uh, who would like to. I'm going to do a little children's message for us this morning. So any kids who would like to, you can come on up front and gather on me up here. And we're actually going to start with a story that takes place before the passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning. Good morning, everyone. So we're looking at uh, Palm Sunday today and the story of Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of what we call Holy Week. But right before that, Jesus is actually in another town called Bethany, and there's something that happens there as well. So I'm actually going to read the story of that, what takes place just before Jesus goes to Jerusalem. I'm going to read it from my favorite uh, children's storybook Bible, which is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Parents, grandparents, anyone out there who occasionally read stories uh, to little ones. This is an absolutely fantastic uh, storybook Bible. And this uh, chapter is called Washed with Tears. One night, Jesus went to dinner at an important leader's house. The important leader invited his important friends. They were all just sitting down to eat when a woman walked in. She was not invited, but everyone knew who she was. Who does she think she is, the guests guests whispered. How dare she? The woman was a big sinner and everyone knew it. It was easy to see, after all, that she had broken the rules and done bad things. And you've got a picture there of the important people, the important leaders, just sitting down for dinner. It looks like they're having fish, but they don't look very happy, do they? No. The woman walked straight to Jesus. She was carrying very expensive perfume. Now the thing about perfume back then was that it didn't come in bottles, it came in jars. And the jars were made of precious stone like alabaster. But here's the catch. The jars didn't have a lid or a stopper or anything, so the only way you got the perfume out was if you broke the jar open. Once you broke the jar, that was it. You had no more. Because of this, most people didn't use perfume because it was too precious. They just kept it on a shelf and looked at it. And there's a picture of one of those jars. So you see how there's no stopper, no lid? It's just one whole jar. So you see this perfume was her most precious thing in all the world. It was her treasure. The woman knelt down before Jesus like he was a king. She held Jesus' feet in her hands and started to cry. Her tears fell onto Jesus' feet, washing them. She kissed his feet and dried them with her long, dark hair. And then she did something strange. She broke the jar and poured the perfume all over his feet. Everyone gasped. What a waste over someone's feet, such expensive perfume. It smelled like lilies in a summer field. Jesus looked at the woman and he smiled at her. What she had done was the most wonderful thing. Just as Samuel, the prophet, had anointed David, God's true king, all those years before, so this woman had anointed Jesus, not with oil, but with her tears. And so you see all of the important leaders 
look surprised and aghast at what's happening. You can see the jar broken open by Jesus' feet down there. The important people were cross. They were angry. They thought Jesus should not be kind to this woman. That woman is a sinner, they grumbled. We're the good ones, and it's true. They did look good from the outside. After all, they were keeping all the rules, but Jesus could see inside people, and in their hearts, Jesus saw that they did not love God or other people. They were running away from God, and they thought they didn't need a rescuer. They thought they were good enough because they kept the rules, but sin had stopped their hearts from working properly, and their hearts were hard and cold. This woman knows she's a sinner, Jesus told them. She knows she'll never be good enough. She knows she needs me to rescue her. That's why she loves me so much. And you see Jesus with his hand on the woman's shoulder there. You look down on this woman because you don't look up to God. She is sinful on the outside, but you are sinful on the inside. The important people shook with anger. Jesus turned to the woman and smiled. Your sins are forgiven, he said. You trusted me and God has rescued you. Who does Jesus think he is, the important people whispered. Only God can forgive sins. You see, they didn't believe that Jesus was God's son. The more Jesus loved people and helped them, the more the important people and leaders hated him. They were afraid people would follow Jesus instead of them. They were jealous and angry angry enough to kill Jesus. And obviously that's what happens later this week on Good Friday, and we'll talk about that later this week. But then there's something else that happens too. What happens after that? After Jesus dies, he rises again. That's what we get to talk about next Sunday. That's right. You all can make your way back to your seats. And we're gonna turn to the text, the story that comes right after that one here in John chapter 12. So again, John 12, 12 through 19, and this is what the text says. The next day, right after that episode where Jesus is anointed in Bethany, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, that's the Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had happened to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, uh, it would be odd, wouldn't it, if one week from today on, on Easter Sunday morning we were to begin our service with the song, Away in a Manger? Uh, 
It would be equally odd next Christmas if we were to begin our service with the hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. It would be strange, wouldn't it, this coming July, if we were to sit down on the 4th of July to a meal of turkey and and stuffing and sweet potatoes. And it would be equally strange next Thanksgiving if we were to sit down to a meal of burgers and brats and hot dogs, though I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't mind that last one too much. It would be odd or strange to do those things because to do them would be to mix up the symbols and the traditions and the significance of those different holidays, Easter and Christmas, the 4th of July, and Thanksgiving. And yet as strange as that may sound, that's actually exactly what we see here in our text for this morning. That's because as Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey here in John chapter 12, there's a slew of mishmashed symbols and traditions from various Jewish holidays that accompany him. And so to understand what's going on here in this text on Palm Sunday, on Jesus' so-called triumphal entry, we need to understand those two different holidays. We need to talk a bit about their meaning and significance. Specifically, we need to talk about two of them. We need to talk first about the Jewish holiday of Passover, and then second, we need to talk about the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. To understand what's going on here, its significance for the people who witnessed it back then, as well as its significance for Jesus' people still today, us. We need to talk about the history of those holidays, what they meant or were about, and then what they mean here as their symbols and significance become intertwined with Jesus. So let's start with the first one of those. Let's start with Passover. Uh, of those two Jewish holidays, Passover and Hanukkah, uh, Passover is, one, is the one that we likely know a bit more about. That's because as Christians, most of us are familiar, at least to a degree, with the history and story of Passover from the Old Testament book of Exodus. You see, Passover is the annual springtime Jewish feast held on the 15th day of the Jewish month of Nisan that commemorates God's leading of his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. Specifically, Passover commemorates the last of the plagues that God sent to Egypt in order to get the Egyptian pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Uh, Basically, at one point in their history, and you can read about it towards the end of the book of Genesis, the Jewish people, or the Israelites as they were known then, came to Egypt as guests. Initially, they were simply settlers living there in the land uh, at Pharaoh's request, uh, permanent residents, if you will, living in their own territory, their own part of Egypt that was given to them by Pharaoh. But eventually, a new Pharaoh came to the throne, and once in power, he took a different approach to the Jewish people. Skeptical of their growing numbers within his borders, he decided to enslave them and put them to work for him and his kingdom. And so for 430 years, the Israelites served the Egyptians as slaves. Eventually, though, God heard their cry. He decided to deliver and rescue them from slavery, and so he sent a man named Moses and his brother Aaron to Pharaoh. Let my people go, God said. And he demanded that Pharaoh release the Israelites. Pharaoh refused, though. And so in response, God sent ten plagues, things like water turning into blood, infestations of frogs, gnats, and flies, and a whole slew of other ones in order to afflict Pharaoh and his people so that he would change his mind and let the Israelites go. Passover, then, 
commemorates the last of those, the 10th plague, the last one. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 11, but be warned, it's pretty grisly. That's because in response to Pharaoh's continued hardness of heart, the 10 plagues sort of ratchet up in their intensity, each one worse than the one before, and the 10th one, the last one, is the worst of all. It's because in the last one, the 10th plague, God decides to take the life of every firstborn son in Egypt. As God says in Exodus chapter 11, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And that, unfortunately, is what happened. Pharaoh continued to refuse to let the Israelites go, and so on the 15th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, the Lord passed through Egypt and unleashed that terrible plague. All the firstborn sons of Egypt, from the highest to the lowest and everyone in between, died. And in response, Pharaoh finally let the Israelites go free. But like we just read, God did not unleash that plague on the Israelites. As God said, among the Israelites, not even a dog would bark. None of their sons lost their lives. And that's because God had had the Israelites mark their homes before that plague took place. That way, when the destroyer, as the text calls him, came to their homes, he would see that mark, pass over their houses, and leave their sons and their families untouched. And how did God have the Israelites mark their homes? How did he make that distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians? How did the destroyer know to pass over them? Blood. Blood on the doorframe. That was the mark. Again, it's all detailed in Exodus, this time chapter 12. That's because a few days before that plague was to take place, on the 10th day of Nisan, five days before, every Israelite family was to select a lamb. They were to care for that lamb, tend to it, and keep it alive until the 14th day. Then on the 14th day, they were to slaughter the lamb and cook it, taking its blood, and with a branch of hyssop, paint the door frames of their house, each side as well as the top so that when the destroyer came, he would see the blood pass over that home and leave the firstborn sons of Israel untouched. In other words, what God had the Israelites do was exchange the blood of a lamb for the blood of their sons. And as a result, every year after that, in commemoration of that deliverance by God, the Israelites would celebrate the feast of Passover. Well, it just so happens that this week, the week that Jesus comes here to Jerusalem, the week he rides this donkey into the city, this week is the week of Passover. And so in a very real sense, the Passover, with all the meaning, power, and significance that it contained for the Jewish people, and it contained a lot, the Passover makes up part of the backdrop for everything that we see happen here in John chapter 12. 
but so does Hanukkah. And that's the other Jewish holiday we need to talk a bit about this morning. Most of us are probably less familiar with Hanukkah. Part of that probably is because Hanukkah, unlike Passover, isn't a biblical holiday. Uh, You won't read about the, the holiday of Hanukkah anywhere in the Old Testament, unless, of course, you include the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees in the Old Testament, which some Christian traditions do. But most of us probably haven't really ever heard or read the story of Hanukkah. In fact, to be honest, if we know anything at all about Hanukkah, we only probably really know of it as the Jewish alternative to Christmas, which Jewish people people would probably take offense at since Hanukkah predates Christmas by a couple of centuries, but still. And yet, even though it isn't a biblical holiday, at least not for us Protestant Christians, Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights as it's known, has a history, meaning, and significance all its own. A history, meaning, and significance that also forms part of the backdrop to this text. And so we need to talk a bit about that as well. You see, Hanukkah, while not biblical, is like Passover in another way. In that, like Passover, Hanukkah also commemorates an important deliverance in the Jewish people's history. I'll try to go through this quickly, but in 336 BCE, at the tender age of just 20, the Macedonian king Alexander the Great began a worldwide conquest that over the next 13 years subjected much of the known world to his rule. It didn't last very long, though. That's because in 323 BCE, at the age of 32, Alexander unexpectedly died, leaving his empire to his yet unborn son and his generals. That arrangement led to years of civil war, during which Alexander's son was assassinated and his generals jockeyed for power until finally four of them emerged victorious. Each taking a part of the kingdom for himself, those four generals divided Alexander's empire into four different kingdoms, many of which would last for hundreds of years. And the one who got the part that we know today as the Holy Land, or Palestine, the land of Israel, was a man by the name of Seleucus. Based in Babylon, he ruled a territory that stretched from the Mediterranean Sea in the west all the way to Asia and India in the east. Now, for the most part, Jewish life under the Seleucids went pretty well. Uh, While the Seleucid rulers, like the other Macedonians, were ethnically Greek, they were tolerant of other cultures and people groups, and by and large, they allowed the people that they ruled, including the Jewish people in Palestine, to live how they wanted. Until, that is, Antiochus IV Epiphanes came to the throne. I'm pretty sure he did have a nose, but that was the best picture I could find of him, so... To be honest, no one's really sure why, but after becoming the Seleucid king, Antiochus embarked on a campaign of persecution against the Jewish people, specifically their religious observance. For instance, not long after becoming king, he had the Jewish high priest at the temple in Jerusalem removed from his post, and he installed his own high priest instead. Not long after that, he outlawed the reading of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which are especially dear to Jewish people. And then... He got himself in really hot water when he made the decision to sacrifice a pig, an animal that is considered incredibly ritually unclean and impure to the Jewish people, on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. It was that last act that led to the Maccabean revolt. 
You see, after Antiochus' pig sacrifice on the altar, a Jewish priest by the name of Mattathias had had enough. He decided to start a guerrilla war against the Seleucids in order to try and throw them out. It went back and forth for a number of years, but in 164 BCE, the Jewish forces, led by the Maccabee family, finally defeated the Seleucids and recaptured Jerusalem. Hailed as the first Jewish kings since before the Babylonian exile, the Maccabees rode into the city of Jerusalem to shouts of praise and people waving palm branches for them. Making their way directly to the temple, they ceremonially purified it and restarted the sacrificial ministry there, which Antiochus' policies had interrupted. The date was December 14, 164 BCE the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev. And that's been the date for the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah ever since. Now, with all of that in mind, and I know it's a lot, but with all of that in mind, let's talk about Jesus. What's the significance of Passover here? What's the significance of Hanukkah? Why is it that these two Jewish holidays overlap, intertwine, and make up the background, the backdrop for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem here? Well, first there's the implications of Passover. As we talked about, Passover is a feast celebrating the exchange of blood of a lamb for the firstborn sons of Israel, right? Well, what is Jesus about to do at the end of this week? Five days from now, on Friday, he's going to give his life, his blood for people too, for us. And what about Hanukkah? What's the significance of that here? Well, just as the Maccabees were hailed as kings with palms and praises as they rode their way into Jerusalem after liberating Israel, so too... Jesus is hailed with palms and praises as he rides into Jerusalem here as well. In other words, the symbolism, the significance of this text is thick. John, the author of this gospel, wants to leave no doubt in the minds of his readers, our minds, what is happening here. And what is that? Well, first... John is telling us that Jesus is the new Passover lamb. That's the first thing we need to see here in this text. Jesus is our Passover sacrifice. Set apart and kept in waiting by his father, his time has now come. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he will go to his death. His blood poured out at the end of this week will stain not the frame of a doorway, but instead the frame of a cross. And in his death, like a Passover lamb, he will provide protection and freedom for his people. The destroyer will still come, but no longer touch them. Like Pharaoh with the Israelites, the ruler of this world will have no choice but to let them go. They will be set free, released, and delivered, not this time from slavery to an earthly king, but rather from slavery and bondage to sin, death, and despair. Jesus is our Passover lamb. That's the meaning here. That's the significance. At least it's half the meaning. It's half the significance. Because there's also the meaning and significance of Hanukkah. You see, this lamb is also a king. 
Not a king like the world thinks of kings. Not a king like Pharaoh or Alexander or Antiochus or even the Maccabees. Rather, he's the king that this world has always truly wanted, whether it's known it or not. You see, this king comes riding into Jerusalem, not this time on a war horse at the head of an army like all the others always have. Instead, he comes riding in on a donkey. Donkeys were merchants' animals. They were priests' animals. And that's who this king is. He's a priest. He's the prince of peace. He's a conqueror and lord who conquers and lords, not like all the other conquering lords, but rather like his father. And what is that like? What kind of conqueror and lord is he? Well, his victory will come not through battle, weapons, or war, but through his death. His weakness will be his strength. His defeat will be his victory. And his apparent demise will be nothing less than the doorway into resurrection and new life itself. My friends, that's what all the pageantry and symbolism and significance of Passover and Hanukkah in this text is all about. It gives us a picture of Jesus, the Passover lamb, the Hanukkah king, the savior who rode into Jerusalem five days before Passover, before his death on the cross, to pour out his blood for us. Which brings us to the gospel. How shall we talk about the gospel this morning? You know by now I like to end on the gospel. How shall we talk about it this morning? I mean, we could certainly talk about it through the lens of Passover, right? We could say that like a Passover lamb, by suffering and dying for us, Jesus caused the wrath of God, which because of our sin we deserve, to pass over us and leave us untouched, bringing us instead redemption and freedom and leading us out of captivity and slavery. As we used to say in seminary, that'll preach, right? Or we could look at the the gospel this morning through the lens of Hanukkah. We could say that by fighting and winning the war against sin and death, our king, Jesus, provided a purification much greater than simply the purification of the temple because he purified us right down to our very core, right down to our very hearts. And he now rules us as the only kind of king we'll ever need or want or desire. That'll preach too. Or maybe, like John, We just shouldn't choose. Maybe like John does here, we should simply let the symbolism and significance of this passage wash over us in both those two ways. After all, what's wrong with having the gospel hammered home into our hearts this morning, not just in one way, but two? I think that's what we'll do this morning. The week before Easter, we'll let both of those lenses into the gospel simply sit. We'll let them both sink in and we'll let ourselves look at Jesus through both those lenses. You see, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Come to die and exchange his life for ours. And he's also our Hanukkah king. Come to purify us and set us free. 
Either way, it's good news, right? And that's the gospel. It's good news. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we as sinful human beings, we're in a captivity and slavery to sin that we ourselves could not escape. Lord, we as sinful human beings were impure because of that sin and we had no way of purifying ourselves. And yet you made a way for us where there wasn't one. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die, to be our Passover lamb so that your wrath would pass over us, so that we would be set free, so that your people would be let go from the forces of sin, death, and despair and led out into the freedom of the new life that only you can give. And Lord, you gave us your son as our king who has done combat, against the forces of this world has triumphed and won and has purified us as your people again. And he now rules as our King and Lord forever. Thank you for the grace and goodness of your gospel good news. And it's in his name, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen.